This is Culture Hollywood for Smart People for Wednesday, September 4th, 2019. I'm Nico, I'm your host. We're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Welcome to the program. A post-Labor Day edition of Culture. It's still catching up from a horrendously busy weekend. Most of America was on a sojourn from their stressful lives. And uh, I just stared it directly in the face this Labor Day. <laughs> I labored the shit out of my Labor Day. I don't know about you all. Um, but I'm back. I'm still catching up. You know, I'm still trying to get back into the rhythm of this podcast. But I'm here. So let's do this. Um, I have a few little bits and pieces of pop culture news and We'll get to them as the weeks go on. This is something I've been a lot better about because I used to just get in front of this microphone, open up my laptop, and figure out what I was going to discuss on this podcast like five minutes before I began recording. It's a really bad habit of mine. I'm just not a good prepper. I'm not a good planner. I'm a pretty good executor, I think. I enjoy living on the fly and, uh, and, and producing this podcast off the top of my head. I love the recording part. The prep, not so much. I've gotten way better at show prep in the last year. So what I'll do now is, because I read a lot of pop culture news, that's sort of my life. It dominates this website and dominates what has sort of become the professional part of my life. Um, like, as I'm reading a publication like The Hollywood Reporter or Variety, I'll just write down news stories from throughout the week. So there's a few. We'll get to them. But the main chunk of this podcast, I wanted to vote to looking ahead because this podcast of course is always forward facing (laughs) not left not right forward as andrew yang is fond of saying (laughs) forgive me i will not be arguing about the merits of universal basic income instead i'm gonna look at the most anticipated movies of the 2019 fall season I have compiled a list of every major motion picture coming out between now and December 31st because you smell that? Oh, yeah. I know that smell. It's the smell of popcorn and overpriced soft drinks and critical hot takes and billboards on the Hollywood strip and Academy luncheons. Oh no, it's Oscar season, baby. (laughs) Yeah. Oscar season is back on culture that's right with three major film festivals uh taking place in the past what is it two weeks we just had this weekend the venice international film festival the telluride film festival and i believe starting this weekend the toronto international film festival three major stops for motion pictures seeking an Oscar. This is how the award season works. And I know it seems to get earlier and earlier every year 
But the one silver lining as summer passes us by and the leaves start falling off of trees is that we get to talk about the big fall releases. So I have a top 10 list because I enjoy top 10 lists. I will be posting this probably on the website, certainly on social media. You can find it if you follow our social media accounts at TMT underscore media on Twitter or Too Many Thoughts Media on Instagram. Give us a follow and you can find my top 10 most anticipated films of the fall. I Again, I cobbled together this list very meticulously. I went through everything. Uh, the LA Times published a very convenient list of every movie hitting a cinema near you or a streaming service near you between now and the end of the year. So I did not leave any stone unturned. This is my definitive top 10 list of things I'm most excited about. I did my best to organize this in terms of the movies I would see first if given the opportunity. So picture a movie theater. Every major motion picture coming out between now and December is available at this one movie theater, and I can see them in any order I please. The number one movie on this list is the movie I would see first. The number 10 movie on this list, theoretically, is the movie I would see last, but I can be convinced otherwise. So here it is. Let's go down my top 10 fall preview movies coming out between now and the end of the year. Number 10. I had to do it. I looked for every reason to keep it off. But I had to be honest with myself. It's Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Now I know. I've expressed much skepticism in the past. I am very leery of these Star Wars trailers. It feels to me like Disney, Lucasfilm, and the J.J. Abrams brain trust have attempted to reverse all the interesting decisions from the previous Star Wars installment. And that may not be fair. It's just the vibe I'm getting. Fans did not respond kindly to Ryan Johnson's Star Wars adaptation, The Last Jedi. I thought they were completely insane in their takes. I love The Last Jedi. It's one of my favorite Star Wars movies. And walking out of that theater, I remember thinking to myself, just give me the next movie now. I I need it. I need that movie. I would have seen it immediately. Uh, You give it two years... I'm two years removed from episode eight, and now it's like, ugh, J.J. Abrams is back. I think he's the problem more than anything else. J.J. Abrams just gives me teacher's pet vibes, you know? <laughs> like, he's really good at his schoolwork. He always turns in his assignments on time, and he does very well in math. The essays that he writes are not going to offend anyone, but... They are grammatically correct, not a lot of errors, commas all in the right place, but he just seems like the kid, if the teacher asks him to do something, he has no reservations. And like, I would rather see the essay written by like the pothead in the back of the classroom who turned it in. It's like a D. It's yeah, maybe a D plus. There are some typos, but it's a really interesting dissertation. You know, as opposed to J.J. Abrams, by the book, all the citations are correct, grammatically correct paper. I I don't know. I don't know. It's he's just giving me bad vibes. The more I think about it, the more I don't like Episode Seven. Is that's really the truth? It's not aged well for me. 
the um, the the Force Awakens. That's just a remake of the original movie, and now they're bringing back the Emperor. Ugh, I don't know. I don't know. It had to be on this list, though. I looked for every reason to keep it off, and I just couldn't do it. I mean, if I'm being honest with myself, if we're really getting down to brass tacks, in this imaginary movie theater in my head, if Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker is available, that is the first movie I'm seeing. I'm just not as optimistic about its overall quality, I guess. I'm really confident with the rest of this list. I think that's the point of the segment. Um, This fall looks dope. And I know we've been talking all summer about how weak the box office returns have been and what a shitty movie year it's been. It's like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Avengers Endgame, and nothing else has really captured the national attention. I think we're going to rebound in the fall. There are a ton of interesting movies from great directors, like capital G, great directors. Um, Some of which may not be so good, others of which may be great, but... I, I don't know. I, I'm really excited about this fall. This is the strongest, I guess, top 10 list of anticipated films for the fall season that I can remember in quite some time. So that gets an honorable mention at number 10, but I really don't want to talk about Star Wars because we'll get to it when we get to it, right? December 20th, of course, is when Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker hits theaters. All right, here we go. Now, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Number nine. All right, I have little women here. I Have Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. It's coming out October 4th in a wide release. Uh, the studio seems to be making a pretty big push for this movie, and I'll be interested to see how it does at the box office. The cast is just stacked. Timothy Chalamet, Florence Pugh, Emma Watson, Saoirse Ronan, Meryl Streep, Laura Dern, Bob Odenkirk, uh, a lot of Greta Gerwig favorites like Tracy Letts, who was in Lady Bird two years ago. This is the adaptation of the beloved novel. It's been made in various forms over the years. I think there was a miniseries in the early 90s, um, several film adaptations. None of them got the book quite right. I don't think there's like a definitive Little Women adaptation. I have to be honest. I hate these types of movies. (laughs) I strongly dislike... Little House on the Prairie shit. That's not my vibe. I'm not into like colonial United States costume dramas. I don't like these types of period pieces. And the trailer for this, I I can't say I was blown away by the trailer. It was just a lot of really vague feminist shit and some big name actors on screen together. I am only anticipating this movie because of Greta Gerwig's attachment. That is the only reason why I will see Little Women, because I think Greta Gerwig is one of the great young directors working. Um, Lady Bird was was one of my favorite movies of the year, and um, she just gets me. I just enjoy her dialogue. I enjoy her creative vision. I enjoy the worlds that she creates. I enjoy the stories that she tackles. So, okay, sign me up. Four sisters come of age in America in the aftermath of the Civil War. Normally... A description like that would make me want to vomit. It's like, bro, I haven't been to history class in seven years. And there's a reason why I haven't went back. I'm good. I'm good with your period piece costume dramas. This one, I'll make an exception. You will never have my attention for a movie like this ever again. So Greta Gerwig, please, for the love of God, do not blow it. 
Number eight. It's a movie called Jojo Rabbit. And it's written and directed by Taika Waititi, who also stars in the movie. Taika Waititi, of course, is the director behind Thor Ragnarok and Hunt for the Wilder People and What We Do in the Shadows. All three of those movies are great comedies in their own right, but they also have a tremendous amount of heart and soul. There's such a specificity to Taika Waititi movies. And this is a guy that, in a very short period of time, has grown my respect and adoration. This is a guy I will see everything he makes now. Um, and Thor Ragnarok, I, I, I think, was a crowd pleaser. Most people would agree this guy is an interesting director worth following, whether or not he's working on $200 million superhero movies or $10 million independent films. I am always intrigued by the follow-up movies with directors like Taika Waititi. I'm always interested when a guy is given the keys to the kingdom, millions upon millions of dollars, giant production budgets, special effects, A-list actors. He's allowed to paint on this very large canvas. And then what does he do after? What does he do once he's been crowned king of the castle? What does he do when the studios give him $10 million to make his little idiosyncratic project? You know, and this goes for anyone. Paul Thomas Anderson, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, It's always interesting what they decide to do with their power. So Taika Waititi makes this beloved Thor movie. He's uh, already prepping production for Thor 4. What is it? Love and Thunder? Thor? Yeah, Love and Thunder. So he's a studio guy now. He is a hired hand Marvel trusts him with their biggest characters, and he's going to continue to make corporate uh, pieces of intellectual property. Now, though, he has some room to play in the sandbox, and this movie looks to be out there. It's a, it, it seems to be a bit controversial on the surface. Taika Waititi plays Adolf Hitler, or at least a form of Adolf Hitler. There's this kid who's growing up in Nazi Germany who creates this imaginary character of Hitler to hang out with. So he's not a real version of Hitler, but he's sort of a metaphorical um, version. And uh, Scarlett Johansson's in the movie. Sam Rockwell's in the movie. I have seen whispers online of faux outrage. This is obviously meant to be satirical. Taika Waititi describes the movie as an anti-hate satire. So I don't imagine Jojo Rabbit is going to be pro-Nazi, you know? <laughs> but people will respond the way they want to respond. I'm sure this movie will have a lot to say about our current state of affairs, the rise of fascism, uh, maybe a thing or two to say about Trump. Who knows? But this is a guy that has earned my trust. It's an interesting project. It's an ambitious project. And it's a small project. And if this is involved in the Oscar conversation in any way, I think we are in for a very interesting and thought-provoking Oscar season. So Jojo Rabbit, just on name recognition alone, and the trailer looks pretty good too. It looks very specific to Taika's sensibility, as most of his movies are. So yeah, sign me up. Jojo Rabbit is released October 18th. Now, number seven. It's a movie called The Laundromat. I have heard sort of mixed things about The Laundromat. I believe it debuted at Venice this week. And uh, look, I'm only seeing it because of the names. This is what happens in the fall. 
in the summertime, you see movies because of the characters. In the fall, you go for interesting directors and interesting actors. And this movie is certainly chock full of both. Directed by Steven Soderbergh, produced by Netflix. This, by the way, I discussed it last week, will be released in theaters before it hits Netflix. September 7th is the theatrical release date, to be specific. And October 18th is when you'll be able to stream it at your house. It stars Meryl Streep and Gary Oldman and Sharon Stone and Antonio Banderas. I don't imagine Meryl Streep has worked with Steven Soderbergh in the past, so that's a significant achievement. You have my money already. And it looks like a pretty transformative role. This is the most interesting Meryl performance I think we're going to see for the next several years. Certainly uh, in the last five years. Um, great hair. Great outfit. Uh, lots of interesting hats. And it's a movie about the Panama Papers. So Soderbergh in the last few years has been keeping it very small. He made this movie called High Flying Bird for Netflix. I think it was in February. And it was shot entirely on an iPhone. Good cast. Solid cast. Kyle McLaughlin's in that movie. Uh, What's his name? Andre Washington? Shoot. What's that guy's name? I really like that movie. It's one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Hi, Oh, Andre Holland. I apologize. Andre Holland. Uh, Zazie Beetz is in it. It's a really fun, snappy movie that's shot on an iPhone. And that's sort of what Soderbergh is all about. He's all about keeping it small, just making as many movies as he possibly can because this guy is an addict behind the camera. He cannot contain himself. So it's going to be interesting to see now. He has a budget. He's working with big movie stars again. It's a big Oscar buzz release. How will he be able to adjust? I don't know. We'll see. This has got to be his flashiest movie since what? Magic Mike? Yeah, and that was in 2012. Since he retired, quote-unquote, from filmmaking after side effects, this is the movie with the biggest budget, biggest movie stars, most mainstream appeal. It's a historical drama. It is right in line with what the Oscars are looking for. A lot of ad money behind it. Going to be a big campaign, I would imagine, for Meryl Streep and Gary Oldman. So, yeah, this is an interesting adjustment. As someone that is fascinated by the career of Steven Soderbergh, and we'll see everything that he does, this is a movie to watch. This is certainly going to be significant. I'm not sure, given those reviews, how successful it's going to be, but this is a guy that has earned my trust, and so he finds a spot on the list at number seven. Number six, it's got to be Knives Out. Ryan Johnson, fresh off Star Wars, dusted all those bad Rotten Tomatoes scores off of him, and he's reemerged to make a murder mystery in a mansion. I'm not usually a huge fan of like the Agatha Christie, uh, uh, Strangers on a Train, or what's that movie called? Murder on the Orient Express, Clue style murder mystery, where it's just a bunch of interesting character actors in a room figuring out a crime. They they always sort of feel a little stiff to me, so. I don't know. There's something about them that I, I don't necessarily embrace, but Ryan Johnson is the type of guy that would get me interested in a movie like Knives Out, which incidentally stars... Oh my God, you hear that thunder? Oh, it was such a shunder! 
Wow, torrential downpour in suburban Connecticut, y'all. Damn. What just happened? Dude, we're having the weirdest weather lately. By the way, stay safe, all y'all down in Florida and the Carolinas. Get out of there if you have to. I know the storm has sort of settled down, right? Switch from Category 5 to Category 2. Kind of just grazed the coast. Man, the Bahamas got hit bad, huh? I have some friends down in South Carolina that had to evacuate the other day. They got a hotel more inland. They're in South Carolina now. But, uh, yeah, maybe that's what this is related to. I don't know. Torrential downpour, dude. Anyway, where were we? Knives out. Great cast. We discussed this. Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, Lakeith Stanfield, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, I'm in. Ryan Johnson makes elevated versions of sort of standard blockbuster stories. You know, he made a really good con man movie in The Brothers Bloom. Did an awesome noir investigation mystery in Brick. Of course, made it one of the great time travel movies of all time in Looper. And I thought elevated Star Wars to another level with The Last Jedi. So I I hate to sound like a broken record, but this is just brand loyalty here. I just have an allegiance to Ryan Johnson. This guy's really interesting. An awesome director to have making big budget movies. He's sort of born to do this, Ryan Johnson. You know, he's not really independent-minded. He works well on a big canvas. He works well with big character actors. You know, because he brings a a real gritty, frenetic, rough-around-the-edges sensibility to these bigger blockbuster movies. Um, So that's what I'm hoping for here. I'm hoping for something a little dirtier. I'm hoping for something a, a, a a little more raw, a little more real, not just a plastic cute cuddly murder mystery in a mansion you know what i'm saying that's what i'm hoping for again that trailer was fine it's it's more the talent attached to it that gets me excited uh knives out by the way coming out november 27th and now we move in to the top five and that's this is where things get interesting another netflix film number five <sighs> fine it's the irishman it's the irishman Can you just show me this movie already? You're driving me crazy. Just show me the movie already. It's like with every passing day, I find a new reason to criticize a movie I haven't seen yet. What are you doing, Netflix? Show me now. I want it. I need it. I've been waiting a very long time. I've been very patient. I've been a good boy. November 1st, The Irishman hits theaters, and then November 27th, Martin Scorsese's next picture Starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. Back together again. It's going to be like three and a half hours long, by the way, y'all. Did you see that news? Three and a half hours, Scorsese's longest film. (sighs) I just have every reason to believe it's going to be terrible. You know what I mean? You're just making me paranoid, y'all. Netflix and Martin Scorsese have made me the paranoid wife. It's like my husband's just getting a bunch of weird texts at 1230 at night. He's been working late hours. And with every waking moment, you've just led me to believe the worst. I'm getting so paranoid. Three years ago, I'm like, yes, I'm in. Sign me up. 
De Niro, Pacino, Pesci, Scorsese, Harvey Keitel's in the movie, Bobby Cannavale's in the movie, Anna Paquin's in the movie, Jesse Plemons is in the movie, Ray Romano's in the movie. Like three years ago, I'm in. Hook, line, and sinker. But you've let me wait so long. The hype cycle on this. We got the teaser during the Oscars, remember? That 30-second teaser debuted as a commercial in between the Oscars. So ever since then, I've just let myself believe the worst. My husband must be having sex with another woman. There's no way. I see the de-aging technology. I see the runtime. I see young De Niro. Just, oh, everything about this. Bad vibes. The movie hasn't come out yet. They're debuting it at the New York Film Festival, so they're they're keeping it close to the vest. They're not bringing it to Venice. They're not bringing it to Telluride. I don't know. Just let me see the movie because I'm going to see it, and I'm going to hope for the best. So if it's bad, I want to rip off the Band-Aid now. But I can't lie. Irishman number five on the list, of course. It would have been higher if it were not for that trailer, which... Oh, something ain't right. Okay, number four. Number four. It's a movie that comes out November 1st, and it was not on my radar until like two days ago. But I have seen the critical reaction coming out of Telluride, and I think it also screened at Venice, and uh, man, critics are losing their shit for Waves. Waves. It's written by and directed by this guy named Trey Edward Schultz who previously worked on a movie for A24 called It Comes at Night. It Comes at Night is not a movie that I particularly love, but it's a movie that I respect. I went into that movie expecting a scare fest, nothing but straight terror and horror and chaos for an hour and a half, and it wasn't that at all. It is a very cerebral, psychological thriller that doesn't really go anywhere. It's certainly not a successful horror movie. It may be a successful thriller and a successful character study about the nature of humanity, but like, I don't know. The ending is very unsatisfying. So I went into it expecting a masterpiece because, you know, my buddy Adam Hall and how he hypes movies up for me um, and was horribly disappointed. I got to be honest. I just didn't like that movie at all. But the direction, the style, the sense of atmosphere, the tone was so perfect You see that movie and you think, oh, this Trey Edward Schultz guy, he's going to be going places. So this is his follow-up movie. A24 is once again producing it. And again, I don't know much about the plot. I don't think there's a trailer out. It is, uh, as I said, coming to theaters November 1st. And it's about two young couples who navigate through the emotional minefield of growing up and falling in love. Seems like this year's Moonlight. Seems like this year's Roma. Seems like this year's If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, Very intimate character study about romance, about love, about parenting, about family. Sterling K. Brown is in the movie from This Is Us. Uh, A wonderful TV actor who has not quite made the leap to the big screen yet. This looks to be uh, an Oscar-y performance. Clifton Collins Jr., Lucas Hedges, who has an impeccable track record, this Lucas Hedges. You go down his IMDb page, and it's just a who's who of Oscar bait. Waves, mid-90s, 
Ben is back. Boy Erased. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Lady Bird. Manchester by the Sea. This guy just makes great choices. You know, he's sort of got a John Cazale vibe going on. Never the star, never the lead, may not get a lot of Oscar buzz himself, but is in a shit ton of Best Picture nominees. Every movie John Cazale was in, Godfather, Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, Deer Hunter, all of them nominated for Best Picture. He never won an Oscar himself. Lucas Hedges has a similar thing going on. So I trust his taste regardless, but... This was one of the big takeaways from festival season. This was one of the movies where it's like, look out for waves. This could be a special, special experience. Um, I don't know anything about it, but I trust the reaction. And so, yes, give it to me. Give me waves. Let's go. I can't believe it's number four on this list. I didn't hear about it until three days ago. Uh, But if the hype is to be believed, we're in for something really special. Number three. Wow. It's Joker. It's Joker. Wow, it's Joker. Hell yeah, it's Joker. Holy shit. Joker. Man, y'all have been hyping this shit up. Y'all better be very careful how you talk about Joker in your Twitter feeds. Because this movie... I have been led to believe is just taxi driver with a clown. We're actually doing this. We're actually making a Martin Scorsese picture with Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. I I just talked about King of Comedy with Adam Hall on the Movie Hall of Fame this week. You can listen to it. It's it's released on Thursday. But one of the points that I made in that podcast is how insane it is that the King of Comedy is basically being remade with Robert De Niro in the Jerry Lewis role and Joaquin Phoenix in the Robert De Niro role and like the Joker's in it, but that's what it is. I mean, I know that they were trying to channel King of Comedy vibes. I did not know they were just making a Scorsese movie. Now, the reviews have been very hyperbolic. Um, I guess there's a healthy amount of skepticism, but for the most part, they've just made me lose my shit. This is supposed to be a dark, gritty, violent, hard R version of the Joker story. Apparently, Joaquin Phoenix uh, commits heinous acts of violence throughout, like Clockwork Orange style. I'm sure that's going to lead to some controversy. I already read a few reviews. I think there was a Vanity Fair article. Yeah, it was Vanity Fair, right? Where the critic said that this was a very pro-incel movie. Um, can't wait to have that debate, but for the most part, the reaction out of Venice was remarkably strong. It's going to change superhero cinema forever. The most affecting superhero story, perhaps since the dark Knight. give Joaquin Phoenix the Oscar. They say, what is happening? Like really what is happening with Joker? A couple bizarre things about Joker because that new trailer came out. And I'll admit, I saw that trailer and I'm just like, bro, grind this thing up and let me snort it into my nasal passages. Fill my sinuses with the Joker drug. Whatever the hell this is, give it to me. Looked incredible. Here's what's so bizarre. 
first of all, that they're making another Joker movie and that they're attempting to outdo the Heath Ledger performance. The idea that Joaquin Phoenix could win an Oscar for the same role portrayed by a guy 10 years ago who we all sort of agreed was the definitive Joker. Everybody was just like, yeah, Heath Ledger, that's it. It's over. There will never be a performance in a comic book movie that good ever again. Critics say Joaquin rivaling Heath Ledger. Okay, that's bizarre. Point number two. Has anyone talked about the fact that Todd Phillips is directing this movie? Like, I know we're really into the dark, gritty Joker. We're really into the R-rated superhero movies. I know. But, like, Todd Phillips has made hangover movies for the past 10 years. He's never done anything this prestige. And it's sort of weird that he's using a comic book format to flex his artistic muscles to become an auteur all of a sudden. Like, I don't think anyone would have ever said that Todd Phillips is a Scorsese uh, disciple. I don't think anyone would have said that he's in the lineage of Goodfellas or Raging Bull or Taxi Driver. You know, he's a good comedic filmmaker. And he's made some great comedies. I would put him at the top of the list of like broad frat bro R-rated comedy directors. Um, he did Starsky and Hutch and he did the Hangover movies and he did Due Date. And he did that movie a few years ago called War Dogs. Um, look, The Hangover is an awesome movie. It really is. So that is a special skill set. But he's never attempted any material like this. So this is going to be an interesting... Uh, sort of career trajectory movie for Todd Phillips, for Joaquin Phoenix, for De Niro, for Zazie Beetz, who's also in the movie. So it's it's going to be sort of an interesting, like, check the pulse of where these actors and directors are. But it's also going to be an interesting study in the Joker, in comic books. And it's going to make a lot of money. But it's also going to be an Oscar movie with some critical buzz. So it's just so weird a movie like this exists. I would have never seen this happening 10 years ago, even five years ago, three years ago, to say we're remaking the Joker and it is going to be a Scorsese movie. He was at one point attached to produce this remake. Uh, Scorsese took his name off the project not so long ago, but Robert fucking De Niro was in this. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to believe. We're living in bizarro land. All I know is I want to see Joker right now. I'm in. I bought in. I was skeptical. I was one of those guys that was like, why are we doing this again? Now, I think I understand. Give it to me. Give me King of Comedy. Give me more. All right, here's the number two. And this is the next tier. Number one and number two are um, are very special to me. And these are among the most anticipated movies uh, of like the last five years for me. This stuff is right in my wheelhouse. Number two, it hits Netflix December 6th and theaters November 6th. It's called Marriage Story. Marriage Story stars Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, along with some great supporting actors like Laura Dern, Ray Liotta, Merritt Weaver, Alan Alda, Julie Haggerty. And it's directed by Noah Baumbach. Now, Noah Baumbach is a real interesting guy. I would put him on sort of the third tier of Hollywood directors 
where it's like you have the legends you have scorsese and tarantino and like all those guys that are still doing great work in the later stages of their careers and like everyone agrees these are american masters they could be among the 10 greatest directors to ever live they changed film they're on the mount rushmore hall of fame that's them and like right underneath them you have this second tier and these are guys that have been around a lot have large catalogs have made great movies in the past but are not capital G great filmmakers in their own right. You know, they've made iconic movies. Ridley Scott, Ron Howard. It's like they don't have the distinct uh, honor of changing cinema, but they certainly had a large role to play, and they will be legends because of that. And I'm still interested in whatever Ron Howard does or whatever Ridley Scott does. And then right underneath that tier, you have... Guys that have been around a long time that have made beloved films for niche audiences but never quite got to the next level. I put Wes Anderson there. I put younger guys there like Denis Villeneuve or Ryan Johnson like we talked about earlier. Like guys that have had success, you have a feeling, oh, maybe they're in the pantheon but... I just need one classic. I just need one movie that I'll remember you by. Where 40 years from now we'll be reading about it in film class and we'll be studying it and dissecting it as if it's one of the great American masterpieces. Noah Baumbach is in that third tier. Noah Baumbach is one of my favorite living filmmakers. Um, He is married to Greta Gerwig, who I just spoke about with Little Women. They have often collaborated on movies like uh, Francis Ha and Mistress America. They have a very similar voice, and I imagine they developed that voice together over the years of marriage and collaboration. So in both cases, I will see whatever they make. But Noah Baumbach has always made movies that speak to me in a very profound way. Um, His movies are, I guess, generally classified as mumblecore movies. That's sort of a new movement among independent filmmakers Not a lot of production value, not a lot going on behind the scenes from a directorial point of view. It's not going to blow you away with its cinematography or its camera movement, but they have very smart scripts. They're intimate character studies. The performances are always great. Not a lot of flash, more substance than style. Um, I love mumblecore movies, and I love them because I love Noah Baumbach. And I love the way he sees the world. And I love the way he draws his characters. The first Noah Baumbach movie I ever saw was a movie called The Squid and the Whale. And that came out in 2005. I saw it, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. It's a movie about divorce. And it's told from the point of view of the children affected by the divorce. Specifically, Jesse Eisenberg, who plays the oldest son. Laura Linney and Jeff Daniels play his parents. Um... Anna Paquin, as a matter of fact, is in that movie too, (laughs) to bring it full circle. That movie um, is just a wrecking ball. It is so moving, so powerful, so intimate in the detail. It's like only a kid that went through divorce would be able to write that movie. The specificity of how the characters operate, how they speak to one another, what it feels like 
to live between homes, how one child may take the side of the father and the other child might take the side of the mother and what that does to a family dynamic. It's, uh, it's just one of those great, small, independent films. It's, it's just special. It's a movie about divorce, and it's very autobiographical because Noah Baumbach himself is the child of divorce. He is returning to that subject matter here in Marriage Story. Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver play a couple undergoing a divorce with a son. It's sort of a Kramer versus Kramer type movie. It's going to involve a custody battle. Adam Driver evidently gives one of the performances of his career in this movie. He will certainly be in the Oscar conversation. But more importantly, this feels like Noah Baumbach's chance to make an American classic. This feels like his opportunity to enter the pantheon of great American directors. Because I don't think we put him there yet. I mean, I'll read you his movies. I love all of these movies. Kicking and Screaming, Margot at the Wedding, The Squid and the Whale, Greenberg, Francis Ha, While We're Young, Mistress America, The Meyerowitz Stories from a few years ago with Adam Sandler and Dustin Hoffman. None of these you would consider American classics. None of them made a particular uh, splash at the box office. But... This is it. This is his chance for an Oscar, at least a a screenplay Oscar, maybe a director Oscar. It's most certainly going to be nominated for Best Picture. Adam Driver is certainly going to be nominated. I would imagine Scarlett Johansson will also be in the conversation. This could be special. This could be something. Every time Noah Baumbach puts out a movie, I'm there. But this one especially so. I'm ready to have that conversation. And number one. This was the easiest decision of the list. Because there were a bunch of movies that I failed to nominate. Actually, let me read them right now. Here are some honorable mentions for you. Did not make the top 10 list, but I'm excited. It Chapter 2 comes out this Friday. Apparently, it's very long and scarier than the first movie. We'll see. Can't make the top 10, though. The Goldfinch. Uh, Adaptation of a novel, a beloved novel, sort of a, a mystery, crime thriller type thing. Yeah, okay, fine. Ad Astra, Brad Pitt in Outer Space with Tommy Lee Jones. Cool, man. Directed by James Gray. James Gray seems like the perfect guy to go to outer space. He made that movie called The Lost City of Z a few years ago, and it's a beautiful-looking movie that kind of feels like homework. Um, But he's like a very broad filmmaker. Like He's very, uh, uh, very Terrence Malick in that way. He likes his vistas. He likes his overhead shots. He loves a crane or two. I think outer space is the only logical place for him to go. Ad Astra starring Brad Pitt looks awesome. Judy, the Judy Garland biopic with Renee Zellweger. Apparently, she's going to be in the running for Best Actress. Uh, The movie is whatever, but I'll see it. Dolomite is my name. Eddie Murphy's back in a comedy. By the director of Hustle and Flow about an old black exploitation star. Maybe another chance at an Oscar. Eddie Murphy's back. Gotta pay attention. The King, Timothy Chalamet, coming to Netflix. Apparently, some mixed reviews based on Henry V. Cool cast. Chalamet's the best. Parasite is another movie. Bong Joon Ho is directing this one. The director of Snowpiercer and Okja. Um, I've always sort of had mixed reviews on Bong Joon-ho. Um, 
I, I think people like Snowpiercer and Okja a lot more than I do. But, uh, yeah, this is supposed to be a, a more middle-of-the-road Oscar-E movie. Could be in the awards conversation. We'll talk about it. The Lighthouse, I talked about this a lot with Jabril and Adam on the Movie Hall of Fame. This is an A24 horror movie with uh, with uh, uh, Willem Dafoe and... Uh, oh, my God. Why am I blanking on the name of this great actor? Oh, my God. Why am I blanking on Robert Pattinson's name? Oh, no. But it looks like Nosferatu. It's shot in like four by three, and it looks like an old silent film. The trailer just looks incredible. So the Lighthouse will not be in the awards conversation, but will certainly be in our conversation. I bet you we'll do a movie hopping on that at some point. Motherless Brooklyn. Ed Norton apparently has been working on this movie for 20 years. He directs and stars in Motherless Brooklyn, which is a detective uh, novel that is now being adapted for the big screen. Another awesome cast, Bruce Willis, Willem Dafoe, Alec Baldwin, Bobby Cannavale, based on the novel by Jonathan Lethem. Um, I, is this his directorial debut, Ed Norton? I would imagine so. I think it just debuted at at, uh, at Venice this week. Maybe it was uh, Telluride. Okay, no, he did a movie in 2000 called Keeping the Faith. So this is his first movie since 2000. Uh, almost put that on the list. Seems right up my alley. Terminator Dark Fate. I don't know. I'll see it. Dr. Sleep. The sequel to The Shining with Ewan McGregor. Uh, I saw that trailer. That trailer looks pretty dope. It looks like a direct sequel to The Shining. Sign me up. Honey Boy. I think I talked about this after Sundance. Honey Boy. Shia LaBeouf. Autobiographical movie, sort of. Shia LaBeouf playing his own father, who's quite abusive. I'll see it. Ford versus Ferrari. This is a real buzzy movie that I almost put on the list, too. It's um, it's very Oscars. It's very old school. This is the type of movie that doesn't get made anymore. And it's, I think, going to be awarded by the Academy for that very reason. James Mangold directs it, of course, who did Logan um, and some other great X-Men movies. Walk the Line. He's had a lot of experience with the Oscars before and big movie stars before. Christian Bale and Matt Damon star as a race car driver and a car designer sort of on the front lines of this Ford versus Ferrari battle from several years ago. Yeah, it looks very loud, looks very old Hollywood. I am a James Mangold agnostic, I would say. I really like Logan. Um, I really like Walk the Line. I'm not sure he's developed a directorial voice over the years. I think that's my bigger problem. But he works well with big movie stars on blockbusters. And this will certainly be in the Oscar conversation. It's right up the Academy's alley. Just Mercy is a movie about a civil rights activist starring Michael B. Jordan and Brie Larson. Um, directed by the guy that did Short Term 12, which is a phenomenal independent movie from about five to six years ago. Keep that on your radar. Could get some Oscar love. The Report... Also with Adam Driver. We're, we're entering a big Adam Driver season. Every winter feels like Adam Driver season, doesn't it? For like the past six years, we keep having this conversation. Because a new Star Wars movie comes out, and he's the best character in the Star Wars movie. And he'll do like a Oscar bait, 
independent drama and he's great in it. And he'll always get a nomination or two. This is the time of year that we are reminded that Adam Driver is one of our great American actors. But this is a movie about the CIA torture investigation, a report that was filed in the wake of Guantanamo Bay and our response to 9-11. Directed by this guy named Scott Z. Burns, who is a first-time director but a longtime screenwriter, also wrote the script for The Laundromat. So just sort of feels like a middle-of-the-road spotlight-type movie. Very by-the-numbers, not a lot of style, but good actors and a good script. Yeah, the report is an Amazon production. I'll see it. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Tom Hanks is Mr. Rogers. Who the hell knows? Queen and Slim is a movie that I've seen a lot of trailers for. The really pimp in this movie is like the smart adult drama to see in the fall. Queen and Slim, it's about a black couple that accidentally kills a cop. And I saw the trailer, I think, in front of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and a few other movies that I saw in the theater. It just looks really stylish and awesome. And Daniel Kaluuya's in it. Uh, I don't know much about the director of the movie, but it looks pretty cool. Queen and Slim. Bombshell, they're doing the Roger Ailes story again, this time more from the perspective of the women involved. Megan Kelly is being played by Charlize Theron. Margot Robbie's also in the movie. Nicole Kidman's in the movie. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of the miniseries that Showtime did. What was that thing called? The Loudest Voice. Not a huge fan of that. They're going to take another shot at Roger Ailes. We'll see. I mean, look, I'm okay with a point of view. I'm okay with a movie trying to say something about our modern times and about... uh, and about sexual harassment and the Me Too movement, I'm cool with that. I just don't want to oversimplify it. This movie feels like it may oversimplify a bit. But there was a teaser trailer released, Bombshell, coming this December 1917. This is this was one I had. Um, directed by Sam Mendes, who did, of course, Skyfall and American Beauty. Evidently, this movie creates the illusion of one take. That's a rumor I saw. I'm not sure if this is fact. The trailer looks remarkably similar to Dunkirk. Remarkably similar. And it's another World War II movie. Uh, I'm sorry. No, this is a World War I movie. I apologize. If they pull this off, Sam Mendes is an, a very interesting visual director. I wouldn't say he's great on a story level. Like Skyfall looks really pretty, but I think you get into some plot holes and some script issues with Spectre. So... This movie looks to be all style, war movie. If it's all in one take, yeah, could be an Oscar movie for sure. The Two Popes just debuted at Telluride. Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. Seems to be like a comedy about the papacy. Cool. And I also had this movie called Lucy in the Sky. This just missed the cut. Natalie Portman plays an astronaut. John Hamm also plays an astronaut. They fall in love. I love both of these people. They're both very attractive. I have no doubt that they would have fallen in love in real life if they were astronauts. (laughs) That's kind of the big flaw in the movie. I don't imagine any astronaut is as beautiful as either John Hamm or Natalie Portman. But uh, in the movies, anything is possible. And it's directed by Noah Hawley, who is the showrunner and often director of Fargo for FX. A great TV mind. Sometimes it's hard for these 
TV writers to make the transition to the big screen. David Chase, David Milch, David Simon, a lot of Davids that work for HBO. Uh, I mean, even Matthew Weiner, who did Mad Men, had a hard time doing stuff for the big screen, but I trust the talent. Okay, those are all my honorable mentions. And now, here it is, the number one movie of the fall season. It's Uncut Gems. Holy shit. Bro, if there was a factory, a chemical testing facility, where all these scientists did, it was their full-time job. You're not curing cancer. You're not trying to find an end to global warming. You're not trying to save the pandas. If they're not, you're not doing any vaccines. If your only mission in life was to scientifically engineer a movie for Nico Gregorio, it would look exactly like this. Oh my God. So Benny and Josh Safdie, the Safdie brothers, made a movie two years ago called Good Time. It's a real gritty, in-your-face, colorful but dark film about a guy breaking out of prison. Breaking his brother out of prison, more specifically. It's hilarious. It's depressing. It's a thrill ride. It's cocaine-fueled. That movie was a ride, man. Like, in the old Scorsese tradition. You know what I mean? Like, in the old, like, After Hours, Goodfellas, Scorsese, where it's like you watch that movie and you feel like you're on drugs. You feel like you just injected heroin into your system. Um... Like, that's the type of movies that these guys do. And here's the cast. Adam Sandler, who evidently is great in the movie. I mean, I don't love Adam Sandler's comedies, but I do love when Adam Sandler goes for drama. The Weeknd. Lakeith Stanfield. Eric Bogosian. And listen to this. Oh, Judd Hirsch. I am not kidding you. Kevin Garnett and Mike Francesa. The Sports Pope and KG in a heist movie together set in New York City by the Safdie brothers. The reaction has been nothing but glowing outside of the festival circuit. Like people are saying this movie will just take you to hell and back over its two hour runtime. It is just nonstop go, 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 go heist movie with Adam Sandler at the center, a directorial Marvel, gritty, old Scorsese throwback. I love heist movies. I love all of these people. I love these directors. Yes, baby! Uncut Gems! Apparently it's like a comedy. It's a thriller and it's a drama, but it's like very funny, similar to Good Time. All you had to say was Mike Francesa. That's all you had to say. Mike Francesa, I'm there. He's actually in this movie acting. He's not just playing himself. It's everything I want. And I hope I'm not disappointed. But Uncut Gems comes out December 13th. It is so middle of the road me. It's, it's kind of like be careful what you ask for, right? Be careful. Never meet your heroes. And never get exactly what you're asking for in a movie. Because you're bound to be disappointed. But according to the, the reactions, I'm not going to be disappointed.
uncut gems. Give it to me. I may have to try cocaine just to see this movie. (laughs) I may have to do it to get the full experience. Oh, I love it so much. Okay. Well, folks, we're 56 minutes into a podcast. And that has been... (laughs) Wow. That has been the fall preview. What do we do? Oh, my God. We're at the hour mark. What the fuck do we do? Well, I guess we take a break. And then I'm going to talk about Dave Chappelle. And then we're going to leave because this podcast is going long. I apologize. Thank you for indulging me. But I'm really excited about the summer and I hope you... I'm sorry, the fall. And I hope you feel the same way. We'll be right back. It's Cultured. All right. Well, I saw the new Chappelle special yesterday. And I guess I'm behind the eight ball, but we got to talk about it now because that's what everyone on the internet is talking about these days, right? We can't just let comedy be comedy anymore. We got to strip it down to the bone and tear it limb from limb and dissect it till the cows come home and mine it for think piece content, right? (laughs) Whatever. That's what we do now. Um, Big story. The long and short of it is the big story that's been circulating on Twitter. I guess it started yesterday. And it's made its rounds through conservative media. And a lot of right-leaning personalities have commented on the special's Rotten Tomatoes score. So if you go on RottenTomatoes.com, I didn't know that Rotten Tomatoes gave reviews on comedy specials. I thought they reviewed movies. But I guess they do comedy specials as well. You look at the distinction between the critic score and the audience score and you see some differences of opinion. The audience score among 11,550 users is 99%, a healthy 99%. And the Tomometer, which measures a total of nine critic reviews, has the special at 33%. And if you scroll further down on the page, you'll see some of these negative reviews, many calling the uh, Chappelle special out of touch, out of time, a relic of the past, not keen on certain social issues, offensive for the sake of being offensive, etc., etc. First thing I want to note, no one on the internet should use Rotten Tomatoes scores as evidence of anything. All right? Is that fair? (laughs) We've been through this in the past. Remember when Captain Marvel came out? Captain Marvel was bombarded by a bunch of, like, sorry assholes in their mom's basement who didn't want to see a female superhero. That that movie has a 55% audience score. And I imagine, given its box office returns, that more than 55% of the audience enjoyed Captain Marvel. But there were a bunch of angry losers on the internet trying to make a point. So they flooded the Rotten Tomatoes scores with negative reviews. It's nothing new. Idiot trolls on the internet have used this platform to mislead people time and time again. So I have no doubt that a certain a certain segment, I won't say all, but a certain segment of these reviews are from Dave Chappelle fans who resented critics giving the special a bad review. Okay? Well, let's get that out on Front Street. Rotten Tomatoes is not evidence of anything. Point number two, I thought the special was absolutely fucking hilarious. And that's just my opinion. 
look, folks, you're allowed to say the Dave Chappelle special wasn't funny. Who am I? Who are we? Who are we to tell critics they can't think the special was unfunny? Comedy is the most subjective art form there is. Because it's about laughter. You can't fake laughter. You either find something amusing or you don't. And everyone's taste in comedy is specific to them. My taste in comedy is very different from my mother's taste in comedy. Or my grandmother's taste in comedy. Or even my father or my brother or my friends. It varies tremendously. So there's nothing wrong with finding the special unfunny. If you're... Listen, if you're tasked by your editor, let's say you're a critic, let's say you're a television critic or a writer, as many of these reviewers are on Rotten Tomatoes, if you're tasked with reviewing Dave Chappelle's special and you didn't find it funny, if you found some of the bits underdeveloped, if you found other bits in bad taste, or you didn't laugh at them, if you just weren't amused by the content of Dave Chappelle's stand-up special, what are you going to do, lie about it? It's whatever. You're a critic. It's your job to criticize things. If you didn't find it funny, then you didn't find it funny. I'm not going to be one of those asshole trolls on Twitter being like, oh, you coastal liberal elites. How dare you not agree with my taste in stand-up? Whatever. Criticize away. Now, it seems like the criticism has not leaked into boycotts. It seems like we've been all well-behaved with the backlash to the Chappelle special. I haven't seen any major calls for Netflix to drop his deal or to ban his Twitter accounts or anything of that nature. That's when, for me, it gets uncool because I'm like a big free speech guy and I don't appreciate when some asshole tries suffocating another person's right to express themselves or to do their art or to say whatever they believe, barring anything unnecessarily hurtful or hateful. You know, I I just think that's not cool. But I don't think we've crossed that line yet. So I, for the time being, will defend the critics that didn't find the special funny. However, here's the one caveat. And I think this is where some of the anger is coming from, if I'm interpreting it correctly. And here is why I side with some of the louder proponents of Dave Chappelle. It seems like these critics are operating in bad faith. It seems like they're missing the point. And when someone misses the point of anything, it's frustrating. Like, for example, if a critic hates a Quentin Tarantino movie because of its violent content, it's real frustrating because the violence is the point. You've now taken the conversation into a realm beyond the artistic. You've taken it into a realm beyond criticism, beyond the actual text. Now we're talking about morality. And it's dicey. I have a very similar reaction when I read critics of Dave Chappelle. When they call him homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic, out of touch, offensive. Like, bro, the offensiveness is the point. You know what I mean? The offensive nature of the content is the point of the content. That's why we're watching. Like, I don't go to a stand-up show. I don't watch a stand-up special on Netflix looking for the truth. 
I subscribe to the New York Times for that. And I pay a hefty amount of money, 12 bucks a month to be exact, to read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. I read the local paper. I go to journalists for the truth. I go to Dave Chappelle to laugh. I go to Dave Chappelle to be amused and often to be shocked because that's what comedy is. Comedy is surprise. Comedy is is transgressiveness. Comedy is about saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. If it doesn't offend you, it probably isn't comedy. That's joke telling. That's the stand-up art form. That's what I live for. The moments where the comedian says something so out there, so ridiculous, so blatantly offensive that I can't help but laugh to relieve the tension. When he goes balls to the wall and says difficult things about difficult subject matter. That's what I grew up watching with Richard Pryor, with George Carlin, with Lenny Bruce. Now with Bill Burr and Dave Chappelle and previously Louis C.K. And even people like Sarah Silverman, who is socially progressive, but still says some pretty outrageous things on on stage. That's stand-up. And it's frustrating because it feels like critics are missing the point. I'm not looking for the truth. I'm looking for a laugh. And Dave Chappelle's really good at getting a laugh. So these reviews generally have not focused on his delivery, his ability to tell a story, his joke construction, his crowd work, all of which were remarkable in this special because Dave Chappelle is among the greatest stand-ups we've ever seen and is still at the top of his game. It was about the content of the jokes, the morality of the jokes, the ideology behind them, and that's what's frustrating. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. There was stuff in Dave Chappelle's special I didn't agree with. In fact, I didn't agree with most of it. I don't agree that, that Michael Jackson's accusers are lying about being molested. I don't agree with it. I think Dave Chappelle is wrong if he means it. Now, it's possible that he's joking. It's possible that he's just looking to provoke. It's possible that he does mean it. But I'll tell you what, when Chappelle goes... Michael Jackson enjoyed a long gander at the anus. I was barreled over in laughter. And in fact, this is not an entirely conservative quote-unquote stand-up special. There was a lot of stuff about race, some stuff about abortion, and I'm sure it offended the left and right equally. So this ain't about politics. This is about Chappelle pushing the boundary, poking your buttons, seeing what makes you tick. And he's never been better at it. I gotta tell you guys, I think it's a privilege. It's a goddamn privilege that we get to see this guy do stand-up once a year now. Think about it. This guy went away for, what, eight years after Chappelle's show? Went to South Africa? No one heard from him. And he makes this return. Netflix pays him an absorbent amount of money. And now we get like one to two stand-up specials a year. We've had five stand-up specials in the last three years from Dave Chappelle. That's a gift. That's a privilege. That's a treat. And I don't want to squander that. So if you didn't find the special funny, okay. You're allowed to criticize. It's all within the boundaries of this internet project. 
That's what we're doing here. We're talking about things. And sometimes that conversation gets contentious. But let's not miss the point. Chappelle is a provocateur. He's dangerous. He's transgressive. But that's why we love him. Take it for what it is. Laugh if you find it funny. It's okay. This is comedy, and that's where those conversations are supposed to exist. He's so good at what he does. There were like 10 lines in that special. Uh, he, had, he had one line about um, uh, about the standards and practices woman that used to work for Comedy Central. And he makes a point that Comedy Central did not allow him to use the F word to describe gay people in the Chappelle Show sketch, but allowed him to use the N word qu- quite liberally uh, to describe black people. And uh, I won't spoil the punchline, but he has this incredible punchline that's hilarious as hell, but also just cuts to the core socially, just says so much about our time and about speech and about the power that words have and about what words you can or cannot say. And it's like there are 10 layers of social commentary in each and every one of his jokes. He's such a smart, thoughtful guy. That's the thing about Dave Chappelle. He's a philosopher. I watch a stand-up special. Some of it I'm offended by. Some I disagree with. Some I agree with. But it always makes me think about the world in a different way. And there are not many comics you can say that about. There just aren't. There are, are like two or three that come around in a lifetime. And Chappelle's one of them. And the fact that I get to watch him firsthand from the comfort of my own home every year, that's a gift, bro. Watch Sticks and Stones, but watch it with an open mind. Uh, I'm sure you'll learn something. And also, just laugh. It's okay to laugh. It's comedy, people. Ha ha ha. It's fun. You should try it sometime. All right, that's cultured. I gotta go. I have a trivia night to make. I have some trivia questions to get wrong. (laughs) pronto so I'm going to go now but I thank you for joining me check out the website movie hall of fame available tomorrow class of 1982 oh boy this was a big one Adam and I debate which film should get into the movie hall of fame from 1982 with the help of Nick Evangelista who plays mediator very long podcast um, in the weeds for sure man we go deep on two specific movies one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. Check that out uh, on the website, toomanythoughtsmedia.com or tmt.media, along with, of course, Why Is This a Thing? Great review of Anaconda available on there, the movie from 1987 with John Voight and Jennifer Lopez. Give that a listen, and then I'll be back definitely with the Nico Show at some point this week because we have to talk football. I have a lot of takes to get off my chest, and maybe Two Cents Radio as well, uh, all around the corner tmt.media or too many thoughts media.com follow us on social media you know i love you so very very much and you know i hope you come back next week because you know what happens then you and i get cultured love you